Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beautiful day. Thank you for the beauty of your creation. And I thank you for the opportunity to come together um, and celebrate families today and just uh, honor our fathers. And I want to pray this morning as we begin for, we know on holidays like this that there are people that are struggling, and I pray that uh, we'll be sensitive to that. You'll show us how to reach out to them and that they'll just feel close uh, to you today. Um, We do thank you for all your good gifts. In your name, amen. So there's been one thing I've noticed, and it's a real privilege for me to get up here on Father's Day. There's been one thing I've noticed that as you start to compare the other holiday, the other obvious holiday, Mother's Day, there's a contrast, right? Mother's Day, at least from the pulpit there is. On Mother's Day, we get up here and we talk about how awesome mothers are, right? You do the work of a dozen people. Totally true, right? We love you, mothers. You're awesome. Couldn't do anything without you. And it's just really pumping up mothers. On Father's Day, there's a little bit of difference, isn't there? I think we tend to beat up fathers, right? We talk about, okay, here's all the things you didn't do last week or this last month or this last year. Step it up, fathers. Come on. Cat's in the cradle. Let's get moving. (laughs) Mothers are great. Fathers, not so much, right? We beat up fathers on Father's Day. And with that as my introduction, it's my great pleasure to introduce my father. <laughs> Come over again. You have to give him some credit, right? I didn't think he'd have the guts to show up. <laughs> but uh, seriously, don't feel too bad for him. He's been talking about me from the pulpit for, what, 40 plus years? Exactly. And those of you that know this man, you're in for a real treat this morning, because if you've never seen my dad squirm, there's nobody that can get under his skin like me, yeah? You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Actually, it's a great honor to sit up here uh, with my dad. I've learned a lot from this man, and a lot of who I am, the things I think important, has come directly from this guy. He's a biblical scholar, and... What he instilled in me is kind of that sense of lifelong learning. I never want to be the expert in anything because what you've taught me is once you become the expert, then it's over, yeah? You have lost some perspective. And he's always encouraged me to move out into deeper waters to those regions beyond that Paul says. Keep moving out, always question, always be reflective, always turn back to God in dialogue, always don't move without checking with God. And the thing I appreciate about him was many of you know I grew up a skeptic. I had lots of questions, but my father was always with me in grace. He was always in dialogue with me. He prayed for me every day. Prayer is important. We should be praying for our kids every day. And I really, really appreciate that about you. So thank you very much. I think our highest calling as fathers is to reflect what we've seen in the Bible about Jesus' relationship with God. I think we take our cues from the Lord Jesus. In his earthly ministry, he's always calling the disciples back to the Heavenly Father. Always, in every instant. My favorite prayer, Jesus' longest prayer, is in John 17 and begins, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I think the discipline and instruction in this 
the cues that we can take from the Lord Jesus is that our whole point of being fathers is to glorify our Heavenly Father. And we're to instill that in our kids. We're to be all in for Jesus. No father should do less. That's our role as fathers in our family. Exhibit the glory of the fatherhood of God. So I turn in deepest gratitude and joy to this man who so shaped my life, who's always been there for me in every circumstance. And in a sense, I get to pay public tribute to him. I get to tell you guys how awesome he is and how much he's done. And like I said, there aren't many people that know the biblical narrative like my dad. I grew up listening to him preach. And one of the stories that just always rung with me was you talked about 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in those two books. We're going to do two books this morning. So nobody get nervous, <laughs> all right? Yeah. I thought Wednesday night was going to be long. Yeah, Wednesday night was going to be long. <laughs> but this is just an overview, okay? What we're going to do is my dad, what I learned from him in this story is just a com pair and contrast the life of Saul and the life of David. Because I think there's something deep here. I think there's something that I can relate to. I think a lot of times we say Saul is this big bad guy and David's the hero, but we don't really know why. David's always been close to my heart. He's been a hero, I think, because he has a lot of faults, but you always see him turning um, back to God. And I think David is one of those guys that's all heart. And if you read the scriptures, always spend any time in the scriptures, I think that's the highest compliment you can pay anyone. Say, you know what? He's all heart. She's all heart. So David is described as a man after God's own heart. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Compare and contrast a little bit between Saul and David in this context. You look at Saul's sin and why he was rejected from God and why David is called a man after God's own heart when he just has some really awful, terrible, horrible sins you start to weigh in earthly standards between David and Saul, and David does not come out looking good. So just put that in context for us. Well, bi- biblical scholars, um, there are some at least, who think that Saul is uh, treated poorly in Samuel, that he is the better man of the two, and just got a, a you know, bum rap through, uh, through the book. Uh, if we look at it from a human perspective, I suppose any of us could draw that conclusion, because in as you compare the sins, there are those who would argue that David breaks five of the Ten Commandments uh, in what he does with Bathsheba. And Saul rushes a prayer meeting. That's, I mean, if we were to say, what is his big crime? He, he wanted to uh, pray for a battle and couldn't wait for Samuel t- uh, to show up. But I, I, obviously, we should always take our cues from God. And uh, God tells us what he thinks of Saul and why Saul was ultimately rejected. It's in chapter 16 and verse 7 uh, where the Bible tells us, uh, that God looks at the heart. We as men and women uh, look at what's on the surface. We see someone who's physically attractive or somebody who is tall. And uh, that text tells us God doesn't look at uh, us that way. He rejected Eliab for that very reason, according to chapter 16. And he re- rejected Saul for that reason, too. So something was wrong with Saul's heart. My problem as I look at the text is that I'm not sure it's as apparent to us what's wrong with Saul's heart as it is to God. Well, let's go through that a little bit. How did things begin to deteriorate for Saul? Particularly, um, God comes to him and says, you know, I'm going to empower you. And then he gets anointed in 1 Samuel 10. What happens there? Well, I, 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 chapter 10 is really a wonderful chapter for, for Saul because we find out chapter 10 tells us that 
uh, the Spirit of God came upon him. It also tells us that God changed Saul's heart. That looks like a conversion experience for, uh, for Saul. And then he goes off and has this wonderful victory against the Ammonites. So chapters 10 and 11, Saul's looking pretty good uh, at, at that point. Uh, it's as we go on later uh, when he rushes the prayer meeting. And, and I say it that way uh, because I think that's what he, is, he has done But at that point, God sees something really internally wrong with Saul that isn't evident, I think, to the rest of us. So he's beginning to slip in chapters 13 and 14. And then by the time we get to chapter 16, uh, it's evident to all of us what has happened because the text tells us the Spirit of God left Saul. And from that point on through the rest of the book, there's no evidence of a spiritual power or insight for Saul. So let's uh, unpack that a little bit. What do you think is at the heart of uh, Saul's heart? Like, um, where do you think he's putting his confidence? Do you think, um, how do you think he sees himself? What's his spiritual EQ? Well, he starts off being very humble. Uh, He didn't think that he was the man. He didn't listen to what God said. God said that you're, uh, he literally calls him a hero. He uses the the Old Testament uh, Hebrew word for hero. And he calls him a valiant hero. And Saul sees himself simply as a Benjamite. Uh, who is a one who doesn't amount to anything. Uh, but I think as time goes on, uh, Saul, like so many of us, begins believing his own press releases. Uh, he, he is the ultimate champion for Israel. He is Israel's giant. I don't think there's any question that Samuel throughout is setting up Saul as the obvious giant to take on Goliath ultimately. But the giant for Israel, he's credited by many as the one who established the nation of Israel. And I think that credit is appropriate. But then as time goes on, he's not trusting in God anymore. He's trusting in himself. That's what happens in chapters 13 and 14. It's what happens through the rest of the book. Do you think there comes a point where Saul is relying on his own strengths? He's seeing himself, as we talked about, what men and women think are important. He's stopped um, dialoguing with God, and he's stopped asking himself even the hard questions. There's not a lot of reflection. Well, here again is where this is problematic, because... Uh, Saul wants to talk with God, but he isn't aware of what's wrong with him on the inside. Uh, it's as if Saul is so blind his own spiritual condition. He's so self-deluded uh, that he doesn't know what's wrong with him. I mean, if you were to ask him, you know, Saul, do you love God? He would say yes. If you were to ask him, I believe even in chapters 14, 15, even beyond that, uh, do you have a heart for God? I think he would have said yes. Uh, it's from God's perspective, and of course the text gives us insight, Uh, that his heart wasn't right, and Saul didn't even see it. Well, I think you brought up a good point. I think um, we get a really good... The Psalms are a gift to us, because we do get a a really good glimpse of David's heart. And I think um, Saul was self-delusional. I'll agree with you. You see an instance where David is doing the same thing. In Psalm 139, you've got this beautiful psalm where David is exalting God, and he's going through. And then, like, he gets down, and he starts to get angry. Because he sees these other people aren't, you know, God is not, you know, the best. So he starts to get angry at those people. And then what happens at the very end? He's like, whoa, wait a minute. What happens at the end? Well, he does what I think we should do. Uh, I've said this to you before, George. One of my uh, concerns for myself is uh, the levels of self-delusion that I've seen. And you remember the one story where I came to you when you were about 10 and I said, George, how do you know that I love you? And I was going to share kind of a, many of you don't know Art Linklater, but he used to be a guy who would have kids things uh, and kids say the darndest things. And I was expecting what you were going to say is, well, Dad, you know, I know you love me all these different kinds of ways. 
And you remember what you said. I, I don't know that you Yeah, yes, me. you, do. you yeah. do know the answer. It's like, I don't know that you love me at all. Step it up and not. <laughs> and it, it just... Cats in the cradle, let's go. Uh, yeah, no kidding. I, it rocked my world. I thought to myself, how could, how could my son possibly say that he doesn't even know that I love him when I feel like I love him with all my heart? And, and that was one of the most significant teaching moments for me. But it also informed me I am plenty capable of being self-deluded, just, just like Saul. Uh, so I, I think if, if we know that's the case, it seems to me there's two remedies for that. We have to allow people in our lives, and I think we have to allow them, uh, to come to us and, and, and take us aside and say, let me tell you the truth. Uh, David had Joab who uh, does that with him. He also had Nathan who does that with him. And we need to allow people you know, that privilege to come and tell us when we are self-deluded. I think the other thing is to do exactly what David did. If we come to God and say, Lord, I, I want to make sure there's some sin in my life I need to confess. I don't know if there is. But, Lord, if there is, would you reveal that to me? It seems to me that's what David does in Psalm 139. And if we do that sincerely, God wants us to be sincere more than we do. I've got to believe God's going to show us that. Would you say that um, that prayer, search me, O God, know my anxious ways, would you classify as a dangerous prayer? It is a very dangerous prayer because there have been times I felt pretty secure when I prayed that prayer, and then God revealed things I didn't want to hear. I think that's one of the prayers that if you pray, there will always be... God, there'll be an answer almost immediately. How do you think Saul's heart, we've gone through this, he's self-delusional, he's impatient, he's not really relying on God. How do you think that affected his relationship with his son, Jonathan? Well, when he calls out uh, Jonathan as the sinner uh, in chapter 14, uh, when in fact I think the text wants us to see that Saul was the great sinner, uh, that obviously couldn't set well with, uh, with, with Jonathan. It seems like our kids can spot the hypocrisy in us as parents more quickly than anybody else. And I can't imagine that Jonathan couldn't see what an incredible hypocrite his father was. And then later he develops a relationship with, John, or with, with David. And then Saul is trying to kill David for maybe as much as 18 years. Obviously, again, he's going to see the hypocrisy in his father through all that. So it had to tremendously impact their relationship. Let's switch to uh, David, as David is a man after God's own heart. I think one of the things that, well, the Bible even talks about uh, David's humble heart. David is anointed. He is not physically uh, the best of his brothers. He's not like Saul. Saul was towering above everybody else. David is anointed. And what happens after he gets anointed? Where does he go? Does he come and he's king right away and he's (laughs) boasting and say, hey, check me out? Yeah, it depends on who you talk to. Some would suggest... Uh, that the, uh, the anointing of David might have happened as early as when he was 12. Now, obviously, the incident with Goliath could have been years later. Uh, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he was very young. He doesn't become king till he's 30. So it's somewhere between 18 years, maybe 15 years before he ultimately becomes king. So it's a while he waits. Humility, part of humility is patience, right? So we talked about um, what happened with Saul. He rushed uh, the sacrifice. Uh, Samuel shows up and says, you're a fool. You shouldn't have done this. You didn't have that. How long did that, how long was uh, Saul waiting? Seven Seven days. Seven Seven days. days. How long was David waiting? Well, as I said, could be as much as 18 years he waited. And, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, and during that 18 years, most of the 18 years, he was running uh, for his life from Saul. Well, that was my next question. I don't. So the, (laughs) that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's fine. That's good. The, um, so he's running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. But David, I think, this is one of my favorite things about David. You really get to see his heart. He's running. 
two opportunities he has to take into his own hands the power and quickly fix things and put what we would think would be right. Tell us about those two instances. Tell us about um, what's going on in David's heart. Tell us why he doesn't act. Well, there's, there's three short stories, I believe, after the, the Goliath story. 18 through 23 is one of them. 24 through 26 is the section you're talking about. That's the second one. The last one is uh, chapter 27 through the end of the book. But in 24 through uh, 26, uh, we have three stories of David having opportunity to do something to enemies. Uh, the enemy in between is Nabal, and David's ready to take out uh, Nabal, which isn't exactly a highlight for David. But in 24 and 26, he has an opportunity to take out Saul, who's trying to kill him. God had already told David, you're going to be the king. We know that uh, Saul was an enemy of God by this point. God had rejected Saul. So you would think that David would be doing God a favor by taking Saul out when he had the opportunity twice to kill him. Uh, even Abishai, one of, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, seems like every pastor needs to have an Abishai in his life because Abishai's uh, attitude always in relationship to anybody messing with David is, let me take him out for you. It's like, cool. Uh, but anyway, he wants to take him out at, uh, at this point, and David says, no, I won't do that. I will not lift my hand against God's anointed. So he uh, refuses. He was going to trust God to take care of uh, Saul and not do it himself, which is obviously the lesson he gets with Nabal, that he wasn't ready to do, but God lets him know that's what you should do with Nabal too. I think that part of that is the dialogue that we see. Uh, David is not ready to move without God, and he takes God's promises and vows very seriously. Um, I think when we are in the midst of that waiting, that's the hardest place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Share a story about uh, where you've had to wait on God. Well, I mean, there's so many. I mean, some related to you, John and George. But the <laughs> one... <laughs> More to my sisters than <laughs> anyway. uh, I remember when, uh, when I was at the Winneka Bible Church, uh, I was in charge of vacation Bible school, and we were going to work with the junior hires. And I, at that point, I thought it would be wonderful for the junior hires to learn something about prayer. And you know this, George. We can teach stories about prayer. We can teach biblical passages about prayer. But until someone comes to the point where they realize there's a God in heaven who answers prayers bigger than we can pray, we don't know prayer yet. So I began the week praying that way. God, give us something so big that these junior hires will see that you are an awesome God who answers prayer. I, I started praying that on Monday. And Tuesday, we got an eviction notice from our, our uh, landlady who let us know in a week we need to come up with more money than we could afford to pay or we had to move out. So we had a week to find another place in Chicago. And we didn't have any money. So it's like, Lord, we need to find something for nothing, basically. Uh, we wanted to be between Trinity Seminary, we was going to school and the church. And I wanted your mother not to have to work. Those were our three prayer requests. And during that week, um, when I get depressed, I sleep, your mother eats. And so I was doing a lot of sleeping. Your mother was doing a lot of eating. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and by Saturday, it was the day before I was going to be preaching, I'm resting in the Lord. Don't be anxious when various trials come up. And I was resting. I'm going to sleep most of the time. But by, by Saturday, what had happened is that because I believe there was 30 junior hires praying in faith, believing that God was going to do something, they accepted the challenge and they believed it, uh, I found out that I had an opportunity to interview for a job as a chauffeur for a millionaire in Chicago. Uh, and uh, he interviewed me, asked me if I could drive, and of course I could. And then the deal was he uh, gave us the place for free, paid us $250 a month, 
uh, for my 10 minutes worth of work five days a week uh, and then provided all utilities and the place was between Trinity and church. And so it was an awesome lesson about God providing something much bigger than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. I think that's what we see in David too. He's in constant prayer. He's in constant touch uh, with God. In Psalm uh, 78, 70 through 72, says this, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. The word I want to focus on there is integrity, because what we're looking at now, I want to define exactly what that means. Dad, this is just for you. Is there a Hebrew word? What is the Hebrew word for integrity? Yeah, and, and, and you've yeah, said, that's for you. Yeah, Happy Father's Day. <laughs> well, the Hebrew word is tam or tamam, uh, and it's a word that means to be full or complete. Uh, there are variations of the word that can even mean innocent as it relates to children who uh, morally haven't done anything wrong. So it's a word used of Job uh, that in, in his blamelessness. He was one who was tam, complete, whole. And you say, whole in what way? Obviously whole in their relationship with God. Not divided. Yeah. Yep. Acts thirteen twenty two says this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Luke further adds, I have found in David a man after my own heart. He will do everything I ask him to do. David is obedient. That's what I get from that text. And I think obedience is a word that in today... Today's culture, society, has a negative connotation, but I don't think, I think it's a relational word. I think uh, when you're in obedience, when you're trusting God, when you're moving forward, stepping out of your little story into his bigger redemptive story, God shows up, and it's a way to draw closer to him. When do you think we obey? Well, we obey when we are completely trusting God. And, and, and I, you know, the thing about David that I appreciate so much uh, is it's easy for us to make da- David the ultimate hero to the point where he's not real anymore. Uh, as you look at those other uh, stories after the uh, this story uh, of uh, David and Goliath, David is struggling in chapters 18 through uh, 23. He actually ends up in a cave literally of no glory. Mm-hmm. I know you only give me credit for one Hebrew word today, but that'll be another Hebrew word. The, the cave of no uh, no glory. And he's surrounded by 400 losers. And you say, what keeps him going when he lies to the high priest at least three times and he loses his dignity, well, it's these psalms you're talking about. Uh, he writes nine psalms, we know from the psalm titles, during this period where he's running from God, lying to the high priest, doing all this stuff. He still wants God to touch his heart. That's what I see he's about still, David. He's still praising God. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about David and Goliath. David obviously had great trust, great faith. We look at the story and say, hey, David stepped up. I mean, he's coming up against this giant. And we put Goliath as kind of um, the villain, and we just focus on David and Goliath. Tell us who you think the real villain in that story is. Well, first From of all, a narrative perspective. Yeah, yeah, uh, Samuel is narrative, biblical narrative. In narrative, there's going to be plot development. Mm-hmm. We do it in terms of acts and scenes. You look for the villain, look for the hero. From chapter 13 to 31 of Samuel... Uh, there's an obvious contrast between Saul and David. David's the hero. Saul is the villain. And as we look at that story in chapter 17, I don't think there's any question, Goliath just happens to be a pressure point. Uh, He's a pressure point for Saul 
that reveals what Saul is like inside at this point. And that's the problem with Saul. Uh, his heart isn't right on the inside. Therefore, he's afraid uh, in the face of Goliath. Uh, but Saul, as he faces the same pressure point, he's bold, he's courageous, because he knows what God did for him with the bear and the lion, and God will do the same thing with this new pressure point. Not to gloss over anything, let's talk about David's uh, biggest sin. He has an affair with Bathsheba, sends Uriah out to the front lines, he dies. What do you, what do you think uh, is happening there in David's life? Um, yeah. Well, part of it is, you, as you look at the account in 2 Samuel, uh, David decides he's going to relax. It, you know, right before his sin, we find out the kings were out at war, and you say, well, why wasn't David there? Yeah. He was the commander-in-chief. He should have been in the battle. Instead, he was relaxing, and what inver- invariably happens when we're, in, when we're relaxed and we're not engaged in what God has called us to do, that's when we're most susceptible to, uh, to sin, and that's when it happens for him. Uh, you know, he sins in the same way that any guy can sin today. He sees something that he likes, he lusts after what he likes, and then a chain of events happens uh, where he ends up uh, having uh, this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and then he feels trapped, uh, trying to lie his way out of it, and of course the whole thing with Uriah is, is all a part of that. So the difference uh, between David and Saul, even though David's sin is much larger, uh, put in a little bit of context to David's response to God, and particularly Psalm 51. Yeah, well, it's back to what we said before. I think the fundamental issue for David and the difference between David and Saul is that David can have moments of self-delusion, and he has plenty of moments of self-delusion. But invariably, it's either Nathan that comes to him or later in the story, Joab comes to him as an accountability partner and basically says, David, you are deluded, and then David responds to that. Or, as you mentioned in uh, Psalm 139, where David himself prays, God, search me. And he, and he knows God needs to search him because he can see the many evidences of his own self-delusion, and then God would reveal to David what's going on. We don't see that with Saul. He doesn't ask God to search his heart. And when people come to him, he doesn't respond after uh, chapter 14. From Psalm 51, this is what uh, David wrote uh, concerning his sin. He comes to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David is completely broken. He's completely submissive before God. He's completely laying it all out and saying, God, don't cast me out. Don't, uh, Don't discard me. I was, he even goes as far as to say that I was a sinner in the womb. And yeah. he is broken before God. He's humble before God. It's his response uh, to God that I think matters. Tell us a little bit about his relationship with Absalom. What happens? There are consequences for his sin. He has a terrible family life at the end. What, what's going on with Absalom? And tell us about what you think his heart is yeah. at that point. Well, this you know, this speculation. There are a number of, of Old Testament scholars who think that David is a wonderful parent. I don't. Uh, I look at what he does when Ammon rapes his sister Tamar and he doesn't seem to do much, or when Absalom kills Ammon and he doesn't seem to do much, or when Absalom leads a revolt and he doesn't seem to do much, or even later with Adonijah, uh, David seems to be the permissive parent. And I wonder why. And I can look at that and, and think maybe the reason why is that David looks at his own life, sees what an incredible sinner he is, and when his boys do something wrong, it's like, well, how can I get on my boys? Because I'm worse than they are by far. And so he backs off and, and, and doesn't do anything. But if you say, how well did that work with Absalom? didn't work at all. Uh, because, I mean, Absalom did murder his brother and then later led a revolt uh, against uh, David and against you know, God uh, for all practical purposes too. And he ends up losing his life. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's a terrible tragedy. The, um, let's end with um, Solomon and uh, God's maybe his response to David after committing this terrible sin. I mean, talk a little bit about the genealogy in Matthew. <clears throat> it should have come from Saul, uh, but Saul's name is not mentioned. It's David's man after God's own heart. And David, Jesus comes from the house of David. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, again, you know, our, our best clue is what God tells us. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, this is right after the birth of Solomon. So Solomon hasn't done anything to earn or merit God's favor in his life. Uh, but the text tells us God loved Solomon. And Solomon was the son of Bathsheba, and Bathsheba is mentioned. Yeah. Go ahead. So he loved Solomon. You say, why? Well, he, you know, he was the illegitimate son of the woman with whom David had an adulterous affair, but God loved Solomon. And then if you look at the genealogy in Matthew, uh, you find out that Jesus Christ is descendant of that, il- that union between David and Bathsheba that produced uh, Solomon. And it seems to me God is trying to teach us something. Those of us who tend to be rather legalistic and think it's all about works and acts and doing the right thing and behaving in the right sort of way, we can behave in all the wrong ways. And if we allow the grace of God to enter into our lives, uh, we can be something special for God. I mean, that seems to me the clear lesson in, in what's going on with Solomon. So David is clearly forgiven. Absolutely he's forgiven. I think that is the key to the comparison between David and Saul. David was all heart. He messed up. He messed up greatly, but his heart was not divided. It was all completely devoted to God. You can see it in lots of the Psalms, Psalms 51, and he ends up being forgiven. I just wanted to close. There's some statistics that uh, were sent to me. Father's Day is important, and I think we can see our hearts are important. Being part of this relationship is something that we need to take seriously. In our country today, 24 million children in the United States live in a fatherless home. 40% of students in grade 1 through 12 come from homes with no biological father in them. 71 of teenage mothers have no father in the home. Uh, 71% of high school dropouts have no father present. A child is four times more likely to live in poverty if there's no dad in home. And I bring these up to talk about the seriousness of what's going on. And I wanted to do something. I'm not sure how this is going to play, if it will be cheesy or not. But uh, in relationship to David and what's happening in America, if you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are people of blessing. We are people of promise. You see the people, you see God saying, I will, I will. And there's promises. He's going to do that. You see the people of God making promises. You see the people of God blessing each other. So with that in mind, as fathers, I want to take this seriously. Our children are our biggest gifts, and there's a responsibility that we have to them. So if you guys are with me, if you're a father this morning and you have children, I want to corporately make a pledge. I want to corporately make a vow, a promise that the children of Wyzetta, you are our best gifts, and we are going to protect you, and we are going to be there. So if you're a father and you want to make this vow with me, would you please stand? Can you read that? Not very well. You got it? Or you can repeat after me. There you go. Somebody's on the ball. Okay. So just fill in uh, your child's, your children's name, okay? Dear Georgia and Joseph. Dear George, Kathy, and Michelle. I promise to pray for you every day. I promise to pray for you every day. I promise to be humble and patient. I promise to be humble and patient. I promise to defend you and protect you. 
I promise to show you how to live a life for Christ by my actions. I will be a parent of integrity, not divided. Committed to Christ with my whole heart. I promise to be there for you always. I will give you my time. You are my pride. I love you. And I will tell you regularly that I love you with my words and actions. I promise to be all heart. Amen. You may be sitting. We would be remiss if we didn't conclude with talking about how hard this is for some people this holiday. I know it's difficult. If you know somebody that's struggling for whatever reason, they don't have a father, there's a strange relationship, whatever, find a way to step into their lives. Today, a phone call is the least we can do. Step into their lives, be part of it. For those of you that are struggling, just know that we love you. We're going to be there. Dad, would you close in prayer for the broken in this? Well, first of all, you introduced me, George. I want to say I love you, son. I'm very proud of you. And I'm going to cry now. Uh, we, <clears throat> uh, I have the privilege of leading a ministry that does uh, research on marriage and family, and of course, obviously, parenting is a, a part of that. Uh, and I can say that I do know how difficult all that we've talked about today can be for many families. Uh, if we have a father that we can't even talk to, and some of us may have, or a father with whom we have no significant relationship, or a mother with whom we have no significant relationship, there's probably no greater pain than we face in life that a family that is not where we want our family to be. Or we've got kids that aren't where we want those uh, kids to be. And it happens way more than what we'd like uh, to admit. Uh, and if that's the case for you today, I, I want to give you hope. Uh, we didn't touch on this. Some may have wanted us to touch on this. But there was a period where George had wandered, or maybe not wandered is the exact word, uh, he was in his searching period uh, for a number of years. It was very difficult uh, for, uh, for, for Joan and I. Uh, and as parents, we face lots of challenges about what we do. The best thing you can do is pray and model Christ. I mean, that's, I think that's the best thing you do. And I'll, this little bit of advice I give you, if you are a parent and are struggling and you want your kid to behave, telling them to behave is probably not the best way to go. Uh, err on the side of love. Uh, that would be my recommendation. If you don't know what to do, show the grace of Jesus. It's the grace of Jesus that ultimately uh, is winsome. And if you're struggling, that's what you need to, uh, is the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it's difficult for us sometimes as parents and as kids to live this life here on earth. Uh, many of us know the pain of a family that is not where we want it to be, either because children are not behaving or because a, a dad is not doing what we hope the dad would do, or mom is not doing what we might hope the mom would do, or there's some sort of dysfunctionality in the family. But, Father, we recognize that if you can take a family like David's, with all the messed up kids and all the dysfunctionality in David's life, and call him one after your own heart, you can do the same for any one of us in this room. God, that's what we want. Uh, we pray that you'll help us to see that measure of grace that you have for us, Help us to wallow in that love that you have for us, knowing that you love us no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what our credentials, no matter what our accomplishments for you. And then, God, may we be so amazed by your grace uh, that we can't help but dwell in it. 
And because of that, we can't help but want to know more about you and more about your word and more about what it is to walk in relationship with you. May we become men and women who model ourselves after David, who even when David went through some of the most difficult times of his life where uh, he ends up in this cave of no glory with 400 losers, but along the way he's singing praise songs to you, may we do that too. May we always be able to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And God, if we're committed to that, our kids won't help uh, be, be able to see it. Our husband and wife eventually will be able to see that. Uh, and, and our parents will be able to see that if we have that kind of consistency. So God, may we make a commitment first and foremost today to you, uh, to your grace, uh, to your forgiveness for us. And then God, out of that, may we trust you for what you want to do with our family. Uh, and those who are part of our lives. Uh, So God, for any of us struggling today, give us hope, give us courage, give us the faith to believe that you are a God who can answer prayers that seem to be impossible. And God, many of us have those impossible prayers we need to pray for our family. May we trust you for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.